Okay, there we go. I think we're live. Hopefully the sound works. We'll find out later, I suppose. But it'll work in the room because my voice does not have to be amplified to you just yet. I wanted to say something that um, Gus kind of made me think about as we were working on the service in there. So you've been pretty capable, I think. I think all people are capable of this, but we're always afraid of it. And so we don't try. But you've been pretty capable dancing around the hymnal with me as we move from Vespers to evening prayer in the same service to use elements of both of them. And then we are doing the same thing later with Compline. And the only problem with doing that liturgically is that we keep having to announce page numbers. And if you think of the liturgy as like a drama like or a concert, but not entertainment, but imagine you went to a drama, an event, a play, or even a movie, and suddenly the screen or the, the actor was turning to you and saying, and what? And you had to play a part in the drama. You were there as a role in the play. And you knew what to say. And so you're sitting there in the movie theater, and it happens, and someone shouts at you right there in that row, and you had the line, and everyone laughs and cheers because it's all part of the same movie. That's how the liturgy is supposed to really be. It's not supposed to be us doing a, a, a scripted read-through in drama class, talking to each other back and forth because we don't know our lines. The idea is that over time, we learn those lines, and we can simply say them. And, you know, if, if you go into uh, any Missouri Synod congregation and you say, um, oh, now I'm going to lose it now, uh, uh, the, Lord the Lord be with you, and also with you, right? Yeah, that's the one I was looking for. And with thy spirit, if you're cantankerous old uh, liturgista, yeah? Yeah, so exactly. So what I would love to see us gradually develop as a congregation is just some repertoire for doing this. And so Gus was asking me, after we say the creed, which isn't there in the bulletin for you to look at, you can turn to the back cover or you can work on memorizing it. It's funny, I used to have the apostles so well, and so I have been enjoying having nice scene every week so I could learn to memorize it, and I have, and now I'm losing apostles' pieces, right? Um, but that's the reason I'm pushing us to have it here, is so we're getting both of those in our life. Um, but, oh, there was a reason I brought that up. Uh, oh, after the creed then, he was asking, so do I go back to the ending of Vespers, or do I just go to the ending of evening prayer? And if you look at it, they're almost the exact same words. You just have a slightly different tune. But the question was sort of, if we just sing one of them without telling you what page to go to, will you be able to sing the appropriate response? And the answer is maybe right now. I just did it in there, though. He sang, and I sang the response, and we went right through. It'd be pretty cool, though, if at any moment I could just say, let us bless the Lord, and you went, thanks be to God. I, that'd be a pretty cool thing to just do, call and response as a congregation wherever, whenever, right? An identifying mark. Um, so for what it's worth, just think about that while you're in there in those various pieces and how everything that we're doing is with a longer-term goal for the congregation and the community as people. Uh, it's not all ad hoc. There's, there's reason. So speaking of things that appear ad hoc, but maybe hopefully have reason, our class <laughs> about knowing God. Um, 
I'm online, you can find all of these and, and watch them again. They're all there. Uh, there is no particular order. Uh, in fact, I'm going to talk about tonight the idea of public theology um, to try to explain how, how real random a, a thing we're doing is. That doesn't make a lot of sense the way I just said that. So we're just going to, we'll come back to it when it shows up in the lining, uh, in the, in the, the text. Um, as per normal, though, I almost put this at the end this week. I almost did. But we're doing it again, starting with wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. So we're going to look at 3.28, Proverbs 3.28. And I don't like the way that's set up like this here. We're going to fix that there. Um, what I want you to see now is we're going to move from 3.27 forward in Proverbs, at least for a while, one verse at a time, I'm going to leave what was there before, but not necessarily talk about it. But so last week, we talked about 327. And this week, we're going to do 28, which I should have bolded more of it, evidently. Um, and then the week after that, we'll do 29. Can we bold it? And go to make it bigger. And go to present. And then scroll. There we go. But we still want to be here. There we go. So, Proverbs 3.28 says this, Do not say to your neighbor, Go away, come back some other time, I will give something to you tomorrow, when in fact it is already with you right now. So, it seems obvious, I think, but maybe it doesn't. I mean, the long and short is, don't lie, right? Like, here's your neighbor, they say, I'm out of ketchup. And you're like, I hate my neighbor. I don't want him to have my ketchup. Ketchup is too valuable to me. No, neighbor, I don't have any ketchup. The neighbor goes away sad. His hot dogs are lonely. Uh, but you did not share with him. Why? Right? It doesn't say necessarily that you must always share with your neighbor, although there is something to charity in this. But the real thing in here is don't say. Right? Don't, don't lie. And so if your neighbor asks you for help, and it's in your power to give that help. The general wisdom teaches us to try to do so. Yeah, I'm sorry about the, the line there. General wisdom, general duty teaches us to do so, both to speak the truth and to help them in their need. Um, what might happen if you become known for always saying to people, well, I don't have any, and you do. And you'll be known then as a, as a liar, as someone who is untrustworthy, who gives information that is half or only half true. And so eventually, your word won't be any good. So it's less about the charity in this and more about what do you say. But then it is in this section about charity to not withhold good from those to whom it is due. So you get a little bit here of something Jesus will say. And Jesus, when he talks, he uses a lot of wisdom. Do you remember this line when he says, uh, if your brother asks for your coat, is it your shirt, give him your coat? Um, if he asks you to walk one mile with him, walk with him two. Remember that at all? There are a little more obscure lines from him. Um, but he's, he's saying the same kind of idea, that life is helping other people. It ultimately is. And you do that either with your hands, fifth commandment, uh, with your family, your marriage, which would be other parts of your body, sixth commandment, with your things, the stuff you have, don't steal, seventh commandment, uh, and with your name, which is really going to be connected to your words, what you say, yeah, uh, to truth again. So you're either helping with your mouth, your hands, 
your family, uh, or your things. But your goal is always to do good. And you might say, well, why? What good is it to me to do good? And that's a funny question, isn't it? Think about the words themselves. What good is it to do good? What a strange question. If I write it on the board, does it become more weird? Are you guys seeing my, my confusion? What good is it to do good? It should be a self-refuting or a self-answering question. Obviously, it's much good. Oh, not with an exclamation point, with it like that. And if you say why, that can only be proof that you have no idea what good is. <laughs> you must be evil to think that good is not its own reason. Uh, to be virtuous, to be noble, to be dutiful, these things are ends unto themselves. Uh, and so in this, then, truth speaking and looking for the good of your neighbor is a huge part of, of wisdom. Um, I took away the section, there was a section title for all of these Proverbs. I took it away because I didn't like it, but now I kind of wish it was there to lean on a little bit. But then with this, remember that Solomon, the king of Israel, the son of David, wrote the Proverbs. He also wrote this other book called Ecclesiastes. And last week, I introduced us to some Ecclesiastes, and I was perhaps overly excited about it. Um, Tonight, then, I want to start the process of doing, and we're just taking five minutes at the start again, the same kind of thing we are doing with the Proverbs, but I want to look at Ecclesiastes. And although I attempted to make three and four both bolded and larger than what's around it, it appears I did the opposite when it comes to size. But hopefully, you can see that there is bold there. I wasn't going to rehash everything is meaningless, everything is vapor, everything vanishes, life is dust. But that is an important thing to reckon with. Um, and I don't know, maybe this is a little culture experiment. Um, yeah, if I just say, dust in the wind, how many know the tune? It's not many, you're in a minority. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, yeah. Everybody, anybody under 35 know the tune? Bailey's probably the only one. So Gus, you don't know it. <laughs> Rick, Rick also. Gus, dust in the wind? No. How's that for a generation gap? Yeah? Um, so dust in the wind, Kansas, right? Kansas, 1977? Yeah, eight, I'm a baby. I don't even, how do I know this song? I don't know. I know it. You know it because it's referenced in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. It probably is why I know it. Although, doesn't it get sung in um, Forrest Gump, too? No, how many roads can a man walk down is what I'm thinking of with that one. Um, so, dust in the wind, Kansas, doesn't matter so much. Other than that, they're singing about Ecclesiastes. They're singing about Ash Wednesday in some ways, not on purpose. They're not a bunch of Christians doing it that I know of. Uh, maybe they are. Uh, but they are talking about the vacuous nature of everything just blowing away eventually. Um, or, I really love a poem called Ozymandias, and if you've read Broken, you've heard this one before, so I'm sorry, sometimes you have to repeat. Um, Ozymandias is a poem by a guy named uh, Percy Blythe Shelley, which you don't care about, except for that his wife's name was Marie Shelley, which you don't care about, except for that she wrote Frankenstein, which... You don't care about because if you read it, it's nothing like what you think. But it does get us to actual Hulk eventually. And so, in fact, you are thankful for 
Percy Blythe Shelley because the Hulk may or may not exist without, without Frankenstein. I have no idea. But they're both green, right? Yeah. 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 No. No? Um, the Frankenstein in the book is, is, is gray. Agreed. In the book, he's totally different thing, right? Totally different thing. Um, interesting book. Not what I expected. But point is just to tie us back to Percy Blythe Shelley. They were both authors. He was a poet. He was somewhat more famous than she was in his day. Um, he has this poem called Ozymandias. Ozymandias, I do not know how to recite it for you, but I can tell you the story. There is a man walking through an empty desert waste. He has a small caravan with him, and the sand is blowing everywhere. He can barely see, but he climbs his way through the storm out into a grotto, and he sees in this grotto the makings of an old, amazing statue. There's like a foot the size of his body standing there in the sand, and it's broken off at the ankle. And he goes, dear heavens, where did this come from? I travel all these lands, and I, I never have seen this before. And here's this giant statue in the middle of nowhere, dust blowing everywhere. Uh, and then he looks around a little more, and he sees over to the side there's a head. So he can see where the head fell off the statue, and it, it lies over there on the side, broken a little bit. But he can see this much. He can see that the guy is scowling. The face of the statue is scowling. And then he sees that underneath the foot is written some words. His words say, Behold, I am Ozymandias. Look upon all that I have built and despair. And the point is that he wants you to see his statue, look at his amazing city and think, man, I can never be as cool as that guy. But instead, the traveling merchant looks around and he sees all this dust and dirt. There's nothing there at all. And then he thinks to himself, he sure looked like an unpleasant fellow. And then he walks away. And that's the end of the poem. Now, there's more than one meaning in that, but the one that I get so much out of, again, is that quip about his face. It's, he got everything he wanted, but it didn't really last, and it sure didn't look like it made him happy at all. Oh, well. Because he knew. The merchant knows. Oh, well. It's all going to turn to dust anyway. Now, that's all just to get us to this. I want to come to you, Peter. But let's just read verse 3 and 4 to focus on tonight. What does anyone gain by all his hard work at which he works hard under the sun? It's an open question. What do you get? There's a song about that one, too. Sixteen men, right? What do you get? Sixteen tons. Sixteen what? Tons. That's it. What do you get? Another day older and... Deeper in debt, right? What do you get for all your labor with which you labor under the sun? Adults, you've been doing it long enough now. What do you actually get? A pension. What's that mean? And is it worth it? Uh, that's a t-shirt. All I got was this lousy pension. Uh, lucky if you get that these days, honestly. Um, what do you get? At the end of the day, you don't get a lot. Go, but go ahead, Elizabeth and then Trinity. Huh? Tan? If you're in the sun, and you have skin that tans. Yeah. Um, Trinity. Children. Well, that's interesting. Not everybody does. But children are a particular gift because as humans, they do extend past the collapse of this age if they're in the faith. So that's a valuable thing. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what you get is death. That's what you get. You get death. You get put in the ground, all the stuff that you labored for, well, what happens to it? He's going to talk about that more. But us, we come and we go. 
the earth, it just keeps going and going. And I get it. If you watch TV today, people are really worried. The earth's not going to be around or won't be the same way. We're all going to go back to being, you know, like apes in the trees because of some great catastrophe, carbon something, something. I'm not a climate science carer. I really don't care one way or the other. I mean, I do. If it's true that we need to recycle, I want to recycle, okay? But I don't for a moment believe the world's going to end because we aren't recycling enough. We might have really hard lives, really, really hard lives because we don't take care of our resources. But that's a different thing than saying that the planet is not going to be supported by God anymore, that life will be snuffed out, and the biblical prophecies won't actually come to pass. So I don't buy that. Um, what I do buy is that no matter how much we try to do anything, the world just keeps churning on according to God's plan, which again is death and wasting and destruction for all sinners, which is us. But then that's in order to bring life and salvation in Christ to all, which is also you, right? So it's, it's not as though what we see in all of this is evil, but we do have to kind of acknowledge it, it kind of is. And he'll talk about that too. It's a great evil that we can't have anything established, that our hands can't build and make it last. Um, but that's also what a world of decay and sin is. It's something that doesn't last. And so there's wisdom in being able to see it. And then in, uh, you know, what do you get, what his answer will be. So I'll try to bring this back as a bit of a refrain every time. You get right now. That's what you get. You don't get tomorrow. You don't get yesterday. You get right now. And right now can be anything, but it will often involve somebody else who's in front of you, some other human who is near you. And in that moment, what you get is them. And what they get is you. And Christianity and grace, to some extent, is the freedom to stop tomorrow and stop yesterday Enough to look at the person who's actually there today and say, how are you? What do you need? How may I help you? Uh, how may I walk with you in the burdens you carry? How may I forgive you for the wrongs you have done? How may I be supportive of you and vice versa, virtue, versa uh, as we attempt to love not just each other but the world uh, through dutifulness and goodness and nobility and all that? That's a powerful thing, to be able to see the day. Um, I don't claim to be a master of it. I'm just a student of it. But this is, this is where we are given such things, is in these words. So, thoughts about either the proverb or the words of Solomon the preacher before we move on to public theology? That's right, you had your hand up. Go for it, Peter. What's scalding? What's what? Scalding. Scalding? Scowling. Scalding, which I have said in my life, means really hot and it'll burn you. And scowling means going... Big old mean face. Scowl. Um, like every Lego man since 1997 or so. Right? Like before that, they were all happy. Well, you have all the old ones. that They're happy. My happy little Lego men. So, all right. So, as an intro to public theology, again, we're already doing this by trying to 
learn how to access the Augsburg Confession, not as some document that I have to have historical knowledge about, but as the Word of God repeated and alive among us and really applicable every day to our lives. In that, then, we're talking about the language we use for these things. And in this, then, um, this is sort of a review of what we've seen. I'm going to skip over this, though. We might come back to it. But what I want to say is that somebody, good evening, um, and it's kind of small, I know, uh, somebody online is watching this and or other things I'm doing regarding these kind of how do we talk about theology, knowing God questions. And they sent me a really good email saying, what about this word? And I'm pretty sure it had to do with it had to do with this class because one of the words we've been wrestling with is the word article. Article. And uh, so the email's about the word. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the email and the connected thing that was sent in the email and respond to it. And I want you to know that I've not really read the email carefully. I just know the general idea of it. And I've not looked at the article that was shared at all. But what I'm going to do is try to engage it as part of this conversation that I've been having with you and with the camera publicly in order to, again, learn how best to talk about this idea we have, which is that the Bible's truth has these things that matter that are separate from each other and yet tied to each other somehow, and we call them articles, like 15 socks, 15 articles of clothing, right? Um, but it's, it's not quite right. But what I want to say then, and I think I maybe wrote this lower, but... What I'm doing is something that's probably a bit new to you for a pastor to do. But it's not new for pastors to do. They used to do it a lot. And the format for doing it was something called a debate. And if you've been... That's really terribly done. Um, if you've been in a debate team at high school, or in grade school, I guess, maybe college, then you know what I mean by the word debate. But if you've never been in that kind of thing or studied it or seen it done, then you don't know what I mean. Because people argue and they are debating, right? Uh, anytime you disagree with someone, there is a, a debate. But that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, a public debate is when two individuals represent opposing ideas and argue as much as they can for one idea or the other without even necessarily believing the idea. But in order to find out which idea is true, both people bring as much as they can to the argument so that everyone listening can at the end say, aha, we think we see what the truth is. Now, I'm not looking to bring the debate back, but it used to be very common for pastors, whether it was at a synodical convention, a district thing, or some local event, a colloquy they would call these things, the pastor would, you'd come listen, the pastor would give a paper and he'd make an idea out there, but it was, it was done as public theology, which means it's open to criticism and it's welcome to be criticized and it wants to be criticized because it wants to get better at understanding. And then somebody would come along and they would de debate back. They would respond and it would you know, kind of go back and forth. This can happen in papers or what have you. 
Well, sadly, the, the, the snowflake or the I'm offended culture that doesn't want anyone's feelings to ever get hurt really can't handle debates because I could only ever advocate something I care about. And if you tell me it's wrong, then you're telling me you don't care about me. And now I'm hurt and I won't talk anymore. And that makes debating very difficult, right? It used to be that anybody could do this even without being on debate team. Now we're not so good at it. But what I'm trying to do is bring us some postmodern format of this back where I'm going to throw stuff out there to see if it sticks a little bit um, as I wrestle through understanding my knowledge of God in front of you, <laughs> you know, publicly. Um, and it's all founded on what the scriptures say, I think. It's all founded on what the confessions say, I think. But I'm trying to translate it for you. So in this regard, I'm certainly open to criticism. Um, and in, in a good way. And I want to welcome that. So, just as preamble to this then, right? So here we're going to do some public theology based on this email um, uh, that I received. It says this. It says, good morning. I came across some interesting info about the term articles in, this is a killer title, The Doctrinal Theology of the Evangelical Lutheran Church by Heinrich Schmid, page 112 and following. Slow down. You don't need to be on Amazon just this moment ordering it. Come on now. It, it'll be there later. I know it's exciting. Um, you might be excited that it was published by uh, Pastor Wolfmuller. He does a really good job of this, by the way, of taking old theological books in the public domain that you can't buy and putting them into kind of Amazon processed format that you can buy. Um, I would love a copy of this book. I told him that, actually. I hope he sends me one. Um, but, uh, but they are they're hard to access, so just beware of that. They are hard to access. Uh, um, but And we'll see that a little bit as we look. But she's reading it because she's really interested in this stuff. And if you get interested in truth, you might do some reading in truth, because that's the only way to really get it to stick in your head long term. Um, so she found something dealing with articles in that. I attached a snip from it, thought it might be helpful as you try to update the terminology. It appears that whatever you come up with should communicate that. When she says this, it appears whatever you come up with, she means our real theology, when we're using this word articles, we really are trying to say something, should communicate that articles of doctrine are so intimately united to each other and to the whole that when one is removed, the rest cannot continue sound and whole. So the idea of articles of faith is not 15 socks. Because if you take away one sock from 15 socks, you have 14 socks. And while in a contest for who has the most socks, you might be ahead, generally it doesn't make any difference if you have 14 or 15 socks, except maybe, I guess, the back of the drawer has an extra sock in it sometimes, right? But you see how they're not tied together the way, say, the members of a body are? You start taking away your finger and your toe and an eyeball and a lung, and now you're not really working with the whole body. You're missing something. So this word that we use to talk about God and sin and the Trinity and Jesus and justification, the Lord's Supper, these articles of faith, it is connected to this kind of thinking. So and how much does that word in English really do this for us? Probably not at all. Right? Not all. Um, unless you could think of like an encyclopedia 
has articles about everything in the whole universe. And so it hangs together because it's about everything in the whole universe. That's pretty rare. So then she suggests a couple here. Essential elements, frame, basic facts. I had the word framework in my head recently as well. I'm just going to put that up there. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, I'm trying to explain this to a couple youth group kids too. So look forward to seeing what you come up with for that. Thanks for teaching and for preaching. I like something about this. And it probably has to do with when I play games like Magic the Gathering, which is a card game, or I play some other game with magic at all, I think elemental magic is really cool. Elemental magic is when I can take fire and do fire stuff, or I can take water and do water stuff. And when I'm playing my little silly games, I like to be able to do that. I'm an amazing sorcerer. You have no idea how powerful and cool I am, if only you could understand. Screaming geek. Oh my goodness. But, so I like the word elements just because it makes me think of elementals, monsters made of that kind of thing. But essence is a cool word too. Look at this. I don't know if this even matters. Do you know what the word essence means? If you don't, you don't know enough Voltron. For Pete's sake, the reboot Voltron on Netflix, which is very good until the very end when they decide to push marriage not existing down your throat, um, has a... <laughs> As an aside, I'll just throw it out there. Uh, it has, as one of its primary storylines or plot lines, this stuff called quintessence. The whole story is based about who's got the quintessence, who gets more quintessence. What, does quintessence make you evil or does it make you good? It's like seven seasons. All about this stuff called quintessence. Well, you know it's something essential. As soon as it's called quintessence. If you know a little more English, you could find out that it's quintessential which would mean like more than essential. It's the highest essential if something's quintessential. So we use this word in popular terminology, and I think it even carries a warm emotion. And that's kind of my point about the word elements here. This is also a warm emotion. And so for me, both of these words are more compelling than the word articles. You see what I'm talking about? I'm just, this is just English, uh, largely. It's poetry as well, though, but it's how marketing works. It's how you know you want to buy this car and not that car. Is by and large, you've been cornered into a, a niche, and someone who knows that niche is targeting you and trying to get you to buy their stuff by aiming at what you would find warm and drawing. And if you like, if you like cold things, then you would find the cold warm and drawing, right? The point is that you're attracted to that thing. So what I'm trying to ask again and again, I don't think this is evil or good, it's just how we talk, is how can we try to be attracted to the articles of our faith as opposed to being discouraged by the very sound of the word, uh, which I think we are. Yeah? Um, and this is why I think it's important to do this. Uh, I mean, if, a, if we are the church of Jesus Christ, which we say we are, and I am bothered or bored by or don't like or don't want to know the articles of my most holy faith, do I believe anything at all? Or, again, have we just failed to translate it uh, so that I can want this thing, hunger for this thing? I mean, and I'm not saying this is my answer for the word yet, but, but 
Do you not crave the, to, to know with utter certainty and clarity the quintessential things of Christianity? If I could tell you that there is only six quintessential truths of Christianity, and once you know those six quintessential truths, you know everything, wouldn't you kind of want to be able to remember those six things? Right? Like it sounds, I'm leaning on quintessential truth right now. That's kind of good. Quintessential truth. Uh, I spelled it wrong. Essential. A. Truth. I think about um, there's something about games. And if you never play, that's, that's fine. You probably have your own version of games you play. You just don't call them games. My, my beloved father will, will say, how can you possibly go down in that dark basement and do that video game thing all day long? And then I look at him, and he's in his chair, and he's got his Kindle, and he's playing quarks or spots or whatever little solitaire. Yeah, right. And he does it for hours. You know, this is which game do you play. I happen to like games that have story involved in them. But... There's something more about a game, any game, that intrigues your mind. It's why you want to play. It, it pulls you in and makes you want to ask and discover and solve somehow, some way. And we don't all like the same games, but we, we do make games for ourselves just out of life. We, we set up situations where we're able to solve and we're able to feel good. I mean, how many little boys have not taken a pen, I don't need to throw this one yet, and tried, right? Why? Because I want to see, I want to understand, I want to experience, right? I want to be part of my world, and it's a game. And there's something about playing games, as I've done it growing up, where there's a magic involved. And by that, I don't mean elemental casting fire. I mean there's like a hunger for discovery that's there. And what I think would be kind of fun to figure out as a group is that life is, in that way, a game. Christianity is a game. I don't mean it in a demeaning sense. I mean it in the best possible sense, that there is discovery, there is depth and understanding, there is complication, there is teamwork. That you can, where I went off on this is like, so I, I, I love how in a game, like you kill a monster and you go and you open a chest. And out of this chest, there's some like shield. And it's like the shield of mighty Thor's greatness plus two to lightning or something. Silly. I mean, the games don't matter in a sense. But you're excited about it because you found something spectacular and you can use it to play your game. Well, in theory, Christianity is like that treasure chest for real life. And what we find in it is spectacular things. We've just managed to bore ourselves to death somehow with it. And I don't know why or how. But so for me, again, I can see opening a treasure chest and getting the, the sword of quintessential truth, right? It could, could come up out of that thing and I would want to grab it and play with it. I don't think we have to have swords and everything here at St. Paul. I don't mind the idea. Um, there is one in our logo. Uh, but I do think, so somehow we've got to get to a place where we're able to be warm toward our truth as opposed to embarrassed by it, uh, worried about it, 
bothered by it. Uh, why would anybody else want it then? Right? So, like, if you don't like singing the songs in your own hymnal, why would anybody else? And the question always for me with music is, is it the music's fault or is it our fault? It's usually some both. But think about that, though. If, if we're hoping to see spiritual discipline and growth, then it can't be just that we have a good teacher up front talking. There has to be a desire to talk. There has to be a desire to absorb this stuff and use it, understand it in some way. Um, and that begins with being able to say, I know what the essentials are. I know the quintessential truths of Christianity. So I'm leaning, I'm leaning toward that now. That's really good. Now, here's, we haven't even gotten to what she, uh, she threw us as the article from Schmid. Was that his name? This older Lutheran theologian named Schmid. All right, this is the kind of old book that does you good if you can get up the gumption to... I'm going to be alliterical. This is the kind of book that does you good if you get up the gumption and grit to grind in on it. Boom. Um, the term article is derived from artus. And this from arto or arto? I think it's arto. It properly signifies members of the body closely joined together, like artery. Wow. See, I, I haven't responded to this before. I don't know. I didn't know this. This is beautiful, though. So I, it's not written well, but artery. So the arteries of your body are the articles of your body in a certain way, right? The word is at least related. So metaphorically... The word article is applied to the parts of doctrine of faith that are most intimately joined together. So that articles of faith are parts of the doctrine of faith divinely revealed for our salvation, which are most intimately united to each other and to the whole, as parts or joints of a finger, and into which the whole structure of the Christian religion, as a finger into its joints, may be resolved. And their connection is so intimate that, when one is removed, the rest cannot continue sound and whole. So where did that go? Um, when one is removed, where is sound and whole? There we go. That's pretty important, right? So for something to be quintessential, it means you can't not have it. If you take it away, you lose everything. So if there are six quintessential truths of Christianity and you have five of them, you have zero. Because they're that tied together. Kind of like you say, well, I've got a thriving human body, but I have no lungs or liver. Well, then you don't have a thriving human body. But I have most of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a system. right? So your quintessential truths, your articles, are a system of truth. The word is sometimes taken in a wider, sometimes narrower sense. Collectively, it signifies a whole head of doctrine. Ugh. Uh, distributively, woohoo! So there's theologians like to do this. We're going to make up distinctions here. The difference between collective and distributive assertions. Ha! Anybody want to go to seminary? That's what you get to write papers on, is that kind of thing. Uh, any assertion or enunciation which constitutes a part of Christian doctrine. So 
you can talk about the, the article of faith, singular, basically, that summarizes everything, or you can talk about separate parts, blah. The Christian doctrine is divided into heads or theological loci. Loci is a Latin word, means places, categories. Um, and these again into certain theses. Man, this is so enlightenment thinking. Uh, the heads of doctrine are called articles of faith, as well as these under the separate heads, i.e., the theological loci's concerning Christ is called an article of faith. Blah, 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 blah. What these guys were doing when they start looking at the quintessential truths of Christianity this way and using this kind of language, which got very lawyer-like, right? It feels like a lawyer wrote it. What they were doing was analyzing the topics of Scripture the way we might dissect a frog in class. And they were trying to pinpoint all the pieces. Oh, here's the lung, and here's the heart, and here's the piece. And they categorized it all, and they labeled it all with relational wording. It's really useful, but kind of by itself a, a, a useless thing, because all it does is show you what a thumbnail looks like or what a knee bone looks like. It doesn't show you the whole. And so the articles of faith taken away from the whole end up being scholastic or intellectual pursuits. And Christianity, while it involves your intellect, is not an intellectual pursuit. It is a life. It is a life lived. Your life is not just your mind. Your mind's part of it, but it's not all of it. So it isn't that what this says is bad, but to try to explain to you, I mean, he's basically talking about how some essential truths are essential and others are not, and that can or cannot include heads of categories of essential truths as we organize them for posterity. Ugh. I mean, it's important, but that's not nearly as important as the idea that an article is necessary. I don't know if artery helps as much as it should. It's necessary. It's essential. And... When she said frame in her letter, framework, there's a way in which the articles of faith are both the framework and the building itself. I don't know if you can see that. That's not normal. Buildings aren't like that. You have the outside structure, and then you have what you put on it as shell. Um, but there's not really a difference here. They create The essentials create the framework by which we know everything else. Oh, that might have been too, too bland and vacuous as I said it. So, go ahead. The articles kind of remind me of the terms and conditions when you mm -hmm. sign up for something. You don't really read it, but you trust that it's, it's going to be okay. That's funny. Yeah. So, that is sort of how we treat theology when it's done this way. It becomes very hard not to treat it that way because it's like reading a lawyer's terms and conditions. And so, okay, I agree with it. You know, what I agree with it. Just don't talk about it, Pastor. <laughs> right? But so you read it and you tell Yeah, it right. Right. And it is, probably doesn't even matter at the end of the day. Um, but if, if that's all we got is some terms and conditions for becoming Lutheran, you know, then it, if we've got a really strong 18th century German immigration problem, we're going to be doing great as Lutherans. Anywhere else in the world, uh, we're not going to be doing so good. Uh, Sadly, I mean, uh, we're not all German here necessarily. I don't know your, your actual background, but the Missouri Synod carries a very strong German heritage. Very, very strong. And it impacts a lot of what we do. A lot of our culture is 
I think, Germanic. Um, it's also very American. But uh, if you haven't figured this out, German's like the only culture that's not cool. Like every other culture is cool. It has everything to do with World War II. Because every bad guy in a third of all the movies has a German accent, uh, whether you're James Bond or otherwise. And as a result, just take it for what it is, no one's ever going to join our church because our church is Lutheran. Like, they don't care. And the Germanic side, like, we could do brats for people on, on Oktoberfest. Okay, they might like that because they can drink. It's, it's, Oktoberfest is the German Cinco de Mayo, something like that. Um, but still, that's not going to change anything. It's not going to change lives. It's not going to awaken minds. What will? Knowing the quintessential truths of the faith and living them, believing them, it's not about law. Don't get me wrong. This isn't about a bunch of rules to live your life by. There's rules. But that's not what I mean. It's like, it's like, what are you thinking with and why? How does your brain work and why? What are the assumptions that you ground everything you do in and why? Are they assumptions the world has taught you or are they the assumptions that Christ has taught you? Um, and the quintessential truths should be the things that Christ has taught us right? uh, above all. So then... Um, Going back to look at, I've been saying six articles, six, six quintessential truths. That's the catechism. Um, the way the catechism organizes all that we know is into these six things. The Augsburg Confession, again, will have 20 plus. I think it's 28. I should really memorize that number. I don't know it. 20 plus. After 18, they get a little focused on how not to be a Roman Catholic. Um, but that doesn't make them bad. But again, 20 plus then. Do you guys like quintessential? I'm looking for feedback. Quintessential or is that too hard? Is it, um, would just essential be better? Uh, quintessential truths. Uh, 20 plus quintessential truths. The first one which all theology comes from, is that God exists. That's what we're looking at there. The second one is sin. right? And all I'm trying to do is try to find out how to do this with those same concepts so that when I speak to someone who's not a Christian or a Lutheran yet, I make sense. And I don't kind of fall back into a, uh, a club way of shorthand talking. You ever, I don't know, what kind of thing it would be? For me, it would be guys are working on cars, or probably if they are working on guns, um, if they are building toy trains, I probably have the same problem. But if I walk in and they all like it and they start going dip 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 with all these words about how cool the car engine block loader thing is, right? Um, and it's just it's just right past me. So what if that's what we're doing with our Lutheran talk all the time to people? Even when we talk one-on-one -on -one with somebody else, it's like we're a car mechanic talking to his car mechanic buddy. Right? Or like some sports fanatic only talking the sports rules and of, of a various game. And if you don't know it, you're just completely on the outside. Um, makes me think of, there was a moment at home where, <laughs> it's happened more than once, but I think the most recent one was Fides, I love you, uh, he, he ran... He ran in, I don't know if it was to Chloe or if it was to Meredith, but he was so excited about some game we'd, we'd been playing or he'd been playing. 
And he shouted something like, and I don't even know what it was, but like, I have the pants that catch on fire now. It was, it, it was that randomly strange. And I knew what it meant because I'd seen the story or whatever that was connected to this. But like his mother is just like, this is great, little boy. You, you have now, you know, the lightning pants of death. Like there's, there was no concept, right? I think when, that's when Chloe's like, she doesn't understand Fides. And I'm like, he doesn't understand that she doesn't understand Chloe. Um, well, until you learn to see where the other person is and whether they're understanding you, you're trapped in what you can say and your language and your ability to speak things clearly to them. So he was unable to see. She needed a translation. I'm playing a game. The game has this happening. I'm going to get the pants of death, yay for me. Right? Oh, I can rejoice with you. So that's what we want to learn how to do with our truth. Well, for all of Rockford, Beloit too. Yes? Because quintessential is too big a deal? Was that? Essential elements still? I like it because it's like a spell in a game. I'm the master of the essential elements. It's <laughs> awesome. Kelly? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like we want this to be a strong word, but. Oh, interesting. So what's, what's also interesting is the word elements is a bad word. I can't write the word bad, apparently. Is a bad word in the New Testament when it's used to describe the pagans' belief in the elemental nature of things. So when, when you have sin... Worshiping the creation, I guess I don't have that in this list, um, what sin ends up doing right away, our instinctual wickedness, is that we worship the creation. We begin to worship the elemental things of life. And so whether you know, you're really teaching that earth, fire, water, and they join together to form heart. Um, anybody? Nobody. Captain Planet? I got it. Early, there you go. Okay, very rare. We're a small crowd. But this was how they brainwashed lots of us into environmentalism back in the day. It wasn't that cool of a show. Um, whether you're worshiping, so, you know, the last airbender is a big comic thing now where that, you know, they have these people that can move air or move earth by various magics. Or whether it's a more uh, complicated version of paganism where you're worshiping the aether in the sky above and you're, uh, you're dealing with various trees directly and the elemental nature of each tree. It's all the same. It's worshiping the creation itself. And that's where it's interesting. Like I agree that this is a good word. What do you do with it when it shows up in the scriptures as something different? The prince of the power of the air. Remember when the devil's called the prince of the power of the air. Um, uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against this present darkness, against the elemental. It's elemental, right? That's Ephesians 6. Um, I'm not going to try to get there tonight. But So that is an interesting thing to keep in mind, but I like it as well as you say it. I want quintessence to win. Look, look how cool... We're not ever going to do this. But you just got to experience how cool this is. Wow. 
like as a logo, right? We could be Quintessence Lutheran Church, and there's a big cross in the middle, very hip. No? Yeah, right. Well, I, if I can make the I can make the Lutheran get into it. Let's try it again here, Quinn. There we go. So, all right. I'm going to, I will ponder your, your feedback. Um, it sounds like you guys like this, so I may, you like quintessence? Um, I may default here. I may put it all in. It'll show up in this list. All of this is malleable. None of this is dogma, right? We're just trying to figure out how to talk. Um, so, yeah, go ahead, Sarah. No, no, that was Echo. Yeah. That makes me sad because that book was attempting to get out of the jargon and to hear that I went back to it oh, so hard. It yeah. Well, I really like the word component. Because the component is incomplete by itself. So that's kind of nice for articles. So we have the essentials of the faith, but they are component essentials. They are not, each one by itself is not necessarily everything, um, nor is the whole in existence without all of them together. So, for example, this is where it gets a little complicated. Is Jesus everything? Well, in our theology, Yes. Um, is he everything physically? No. But is he the maker of everything? Yes. So is it all about Jesus? Yes. So is the article, the component, the person who is Jesus, uh, is he all theology? Is all knowledge of God knowledge of Jesus? Yes. So now I know who Jesus is. Is there nothing else to learn? No. It, everything else gets captured underneath him. In this... He's an essential article, an essential component, who's not a component. He is the whole thing. The Father's the whole thing, too. Whereas sin would be something that would really just be a component. We don't need sin to exist. It's just a truth that does exist, right? And it helps build the whole picture of what it means to be aware as a Christian in the world. I live in a world of critical wickedness. I live in a world of instinctual animal behavior. I live in a world in which people do not think with the words of God's eternal wisdom, but instead in folly and blindness act on their own wishful thinking. To know that when you walk out the door would be a useful tool. Let me suggest to you that you mostly operate in a world where you assume everyone's telling the truth. 
And Christianity should teach you we're all lying all the time, just a little bit. Now, you don't want to necessarily be thinking that so you can catch people in their lies. Gotcha, ha-ha. What it'll do is it'll open you up to see first the pain everybody's hiding from all the time. So you can actually love somebody through what really hurts. But then also, you will be less surprised when bad things happen. You just won't be surprised when you see the evil take place in the world. Uh, what else are we going to do? We're evil. How did this happen? We're evil, right? So let me suggest again that we don't, we believe it, we can check the box. Sinful and unclean. Right? But what does that mean for a life lived? I would suggest that you do not think about or with your anthropology, your knowledge of man from, from Scripture. Just as we probably think about this or with this less than we should, particularly the unseen creation that is still here. So that when I open up the magic chest, ha, uh, which is the Scriptures, and I pull out the truth about my my animal carnal nature, and I understand that this is like finding a cursed charm that I have to have around my neck my whole life long in my battle against whatever demons I want to slay, and that this thing is something that I'm going to learn. I can't do certain things because of that, but that doesn't mean those aren't good things I should try to do. I'm just inhibited. I'm like Superman with kryptonite on. However you want to do it, to make it part of your world and your understanding, just to see that it's there. And it's as real as any fantasy book or sci-fi book. It's more real. It's just all faith. I push, point in my head. I should point in my heart and head. It's all faith alone to know it. Right? It's all faith alone to know it. Cool stuff. I felt like that was a good conversation. I hope you did as well. Um, let's go ahead and go pray ourselves to sleep.